My heart stopped. I was absolutely terrified. And my heart just stopped. I didn't know what to do. And I just remember looking down at Khan Daniel and his arms and legs were going everywhere. And he was screaming. And then all of a sudden it was like uh, something just switched, just flicked. And I put him straight onto my chest and he grabbed on with his hands and his feet. And there he stayed for two years. Those are the words of Rachel Hogan, my guest this time on Talking Apes. I can't even imagine being a young 22-year-old volunteer. It's your first time in Africa, and someone hands you a rescued screaming baby gorilla. My God. (laughs) I mean, a helpless little life, less than two pounds. That's about the weight of a pair of shoes. And it's in your hands. It's only hope for living beyond tomorrow. Now, 20 years later, that infant is a huge adult male silverback gorilla, the weight of a pro football player and the strength of five. And that young naive volunteer, well, she's still there. No longer naive, Rachel Hogan is now the director of Ape Action Africa, overseeing the safety, health, and care for nearly 300 rescued apes and monkeys and a staff of nearly 50. She and that gorilla in Condaniel and the other rescues live in an isolated tropical rainforest sanctuary a couple of hours south of the Cameroonian capital of Yaoundé. My conversation with Rachel Hogan was recorded late in October 2022 while she was still in London, England, only a few days after hosting the 25th anniversary fundraising gala for Ape Action Africa. You're listening to Talking Apes, where we get to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Before jumping into my conversation with Rachel, a quick thank you to all of those loyal supporters who have stuck with us over these last couple of years. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation on our website at TalkingApes.org or by becoming a valued Patreon subscriber, where you'll have access to special features, sneak previews, and behind-the-scenes interviews, as well as regular digital hugs and thank yous from our entire team. Talking Apes is part of Nonprofit Globio's Education Outreach Media Program. If you'd like to discover more, you can find links to everything on our website at talkingapes.org. And now, my conversation with the remarkable Rachel Hogan. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Talking Apes. I am really excited to have you on. Hi, Jerry. Nice to speak to you again, even though it hasn't been that long. <laughs> It's always good to have yeah, a chat with you. Yeah, it is again. It's it's really lovely to have you on. And as a, a bit of a disclaimer to everybody who's listening, Rachel and I have known each other for a number of years, and I've been trying to uh, trying to get her on the podcast for quite a while. But she's rather elusive um, because between her time in Cameroon and other places. It's just been hard to catch up. So I'm really, really happy that you're on the podcast and we have a chance to talk. Um, Maybe explain for everyone listening what the sanctuary is and what Ape Action Africa is, and then we'll kind of back up to how you got there and 
and your role? So Action Africa is a rescue and rehabilitation organisation. We're 27 years in Cameroon. We originally started in a small zoo in Yaoundé, which is the capital of Cameroon. And then in 2000, we were donated a large forest area, which is Mefu Park. We support the government's confiscation policy. So without organisations like us in place, the government wouldn't be able to confiscate the illegally kept orphans. Um, You know, 27 years ago, we were less than 100 primates. We were probably, probably around 50, if that. Now... 2022, we're just shy of 300 primates now. Wow. I guess, first of all, we should say that trafficking primates in Cameroon is illegal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Trapping, killing, owning, having possession of a, of a chimp and a gorilla, for example, is, is illegal. But I mean, that's, that's a huge number to be taken care of. And you're not the only sanctuary in Cameroon. Mm -hmm. No, there are three of us in Cameroon, three sanctuaries in Cameroon, all members of PASA. So we have Sanaga Yong Chimpanzee Rescue Center and Limbo Wildlife Center as well. What is causing it to be so, so many? I mean, how is it that you've gone from less than 50 to now nearly 300? There's probably several factors that contribute to that. It's, it's you know, when I first went to Cameroon, there was no legal follow-up on people that were keeping them. Whereas now with organizations like Laga, who have done incredible work. Um, so people, it's become more aware that it is illegal to be holding chimps and gorillas. And then when that first started and people were becoming aware of that, you had several people that were keeping chimps as pets and knew it was illegal and didn't want to risk having a fine or imprisonment that would then come to the sanctuaries and donate the chimp or gorilla they were keeping as a pet. There's a lot more awareness in Cameroon now. Um, It's also really difficult to kind of track what exactly is happening in the forest because we can have a year where we'll maybe only receive two orphans and then we can have another year where literally in a month – we can receive three orphans. There's no kind of um, consistency. So it's really hard to track, you know, is this because poaching's increasing? Is this because awareness is increasing? Is this because people are, are donating? Because they literally we can have a year where orphaned arrivals will be really low and then the following year, boom, we'll have, a, uh, have an influx of orphans. So it's um, really difficult to gauge exactly the reasons why and when and why we can have several months with no arrival and then one month with several. But I think what is consistent is that poaching continues. Poaching is still a really, really big problem. Otherwise, we wouldn't have 300 orphans at Apex in Africa. Um, so it's still there. It's, it's, it's still happening and orphans are still arriving to us. That must make it also extremely difficult for you, for you in trying to, to run an organization and run a sanctuary and plan. 
I mean, when you just have this fluctuate, a crazy fluctuation and you, and you never know when an orphan's going to show up on your doorstep. So it's not like you can have a budget and say, oh, well, we'll have six next mm. year. So we have to plan yeah. this expansion and a new cage and a new veterinary tent. I, I mean, how, how do you, <laughs> from a business standpoint, I, I know you're not running a, a business per se, but you, in, in some ways you are, I mean, being at the sanctuary and seeing everything that it takes you know, from, from building new cages and enclosures to the veterinarians that you have and, and feeding staff and all those things. How, how, how do you go about, can you plan? Can, is there any way that you can even think about planning? Really difficult, really difficult. I mean, I've always had in my head that I don't go any further than 24 hours. Um, get through it day by day because you just can't. You know, and what sanctuaries are really good at, we think on our feet and we react really, really quickly because we have no other choice. That's how it is. You know, you can have your staff in place. You can have everything moving. Everything's fine in the sanctuary. And then all of a sudden, three orphans arrive. So that means you've got to find three caregivers, um, quarantine space eventually enclosure spaces you know it goes on and on and on so you have to you know we we've all learned to kind of adapt with that that's really difficult to kind of full plan for that because you can't you just can't you've just got to be there and ready when these things happen and that's where the three sanctuaries we work really really closely together so when an orphan is coming in you know it might be a case of well we haven't got quarantine space but Limbe wildlife have um and then uh, Sanaga Young may be able to take the orphan after. So we kind of, you know, we've got a really good relationship in that respect because you just can't plan. And that's not just about with orphans coming in. That's just sanctuary life. I mean, you can only plan up to a certain point. Um, and I normally worry when a plan is going to plan. <laughs> that's I, I always, <laughs> I've always had that. It's like, well, this is going too well at the moment. Um, something just there needs to be a little glitch and then I'm in my comfort zone then but it's just you gotta you're thinking like this all the time the sanctuaries are very good at adapting unfortunately I I mean I've seen I've seen I've seen you on the ground at work and and I can swear to it you you get it's amazing what you have to adapt to maybe to to give folks a, a better sense of the, the sanctuary, you, we're talking about enclosures and quarantine. Maybe if you can describe um, Mefu and the sanctuary itself. Yeah, Mefu Park is just under one thousand hectares. Within that area, there are some uh, small villages and and communities in that area as well. We have seventeen enclosures, so that's large forested enclosures where we'll have chimpanzee families, gorilla groups, and different species of monkeys. Our kind of um, base is within the village as well. So we have our offices there and our kitchen and our caregiver um, houses. Um, So we we all kind of live in this little, we call it the Mefu bubble, because we're all kind of in this forested area. And we're spread out quite far, actually. The enclosures are. It is fairly unique in the sanctuary world, even that you have you have huge enclosures 
and they're spread out over a few kilometers. Um, so just moving between those enclosures, it can, you know, moving food to the animals and just all of that. But just, just so people have a, a picture of it, maybe you could also for folks describe what it takes to create one of these enclosures. Because again, for folks that have never seen a place like this, I think their only reference point is perhaps like a zoo or a wild animal park where things are fairly straightforward and easy to manage versus you're building a new enclosure right now for gorillas. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just describe a little bit of taking a, a raw patch of forest and what it takes to get Mm -hmm. actually having a working enclosure that's safe for the gorillas and safe for the staff. Yeah. Um, a lot of hard work. So it can take anywhere from 12 months plus from start to finish. So these are like, you know, big chunks of forest. So the first thing we all have to, we'll choose an area and then it's going in with the GPS and trying to map that area out regarding what size of the enclosure and and also because we don't like to cut trees down so we kind of plan our enclosures around getting as many trees in as possible and not having to cut too many trees um so once we've mapped out the area it's then going into the forest and taking several months just clearing that path with the machete just so we've got a clearer view and then we build everything from scratch. So all of the panels for the satellite cage system. So the satellite cage systems are attached to the enclosures. So we like to bring, be able to bring the chimps or the gorillas in of an evening. Keeps them safe, keeps people safe, and also protects the forest. Um, so we'll start with building the panels for the satellite cage system, and they're all built from scratch. We make all the panels. Satellite cages, depending on whether it's for chimps or for gorillas, that can take three to five months to build. And then it depends if it's the rainy season or it's the dry season, um, because then we can't get materials anywhere because the mud is just impossible to move through. And then we have to dig the foundation for the enclosure, put the foundation in, then we weld all the, the posts for the enclosure, attach all the insulators, which is what the electric fences go through. It's just huge work. And then during the rainy season, a lot of the construction will have to stop because we just can't get materials. We've had so many trucks carrying materials just break down on the side of the road trying to get into us or even our trucks getting stuck. Um, just trying to take the materials through. So that's why it can take so long. Um, and then setting up all the solar panels and then making sure there's a clear area around the fence because if trees fall, which they will, we're in a forest, they fall down. <laughs> we can't stop that. Um, but we try and um, clear as well as we can. Uh, but it's a huge amount of work that goes in on, on so many different levels. So if we get an enclosure finished in 12 months, we've done really well, really well. And then it's the upkeep. The new enclosure that you were building while I was there, um, that enclosure is what, five hectares mm -hmm. or larger? Yeah. 
little bit, little bit bigger. Yeah. So when you finally get this completed with all of the the satellite enclosure and the fencing and and everything that goes into it, some estimate as to the cost of that. Probably, I, like I can only think in CFA. So you might have to do a bit of maths in your head, Jerry. So round about forty to forty five million CFA. So you're talking probably thirty five thousand dollars. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that neighborhood, I guess. If I did a quick calculation, um, we're gonna we're gonna put up a blog um, for those of you who are listening. You can check on our new website at talkingapes.org. We're gonna put up a blog um, about this um, inter- this conversation with Rachel, and on there, um, some I have a lot of images of the new the new enclosure that's being built from both from the the air and and on the ground and and just some of the things that go through it so you can get an idea of what we're talking about there so um just check that out uh, after listening to the podcast but rachel maybe we can back up uh, a minute uh we kind of left this dangling but um go back to describing you know what ape action africa is a little bit more and and what mefu is like um, in in terms of just what it's like on a daily basis and and what you're doing, what it's like on a daily basis. That one's really hard because we never have we never have a daily basis, Jerry. <laughs> Every day there is no. I mean, <laughs> wake up in the morning and then just deal with whatever's going to happen. Um, we're seventeen forest enclosures. We've got. 50 staff members, the majority of which are caregivers, um, kitchen staff, construction, education. We work with the local community as well. So we have some community projects and we also teach in the local schools around the park. So there's a lot going on. Um, It's not just, you know, maintaining and overseeing the welfare of the primates. There's also the protection and the work we do with the communities, which is really important for us to enable us to do the work that we do in Mefu Park, um, you know, to have the support of the community. So a regular day can be anything. I mean, there's always something going on with education and we have visitors arriving. So the guys are busy with that. There's always something going on with construction or repairing because that's an ongoing battle you know you can we can just finish one enclosure and then a previous enclosure needs a whole lot of repairs doing so construction team are always really busy the caregiving team always really i mean you know it's you've been there jerry you know every day is very very different it's like you've asked me to say what a regular day (laughs) is it's really really hard there's always something going on and of course we make plans like we have our staff meeting in the morning and we've got the plan for the day. So we have a rough outline, but you always know that there's going to be several curveballs throughout that day. And and then it's just dealing with whatever gets, gets thrown at you, really. Whether that's, you know, one of the primates needing emergency surgery, one of them sick, or a, a tree comes down on a fence or, you know. It's never a dull moment. 
New Orphan's going to show up at the front gate either. So that's, that's always can be a surprise. I, well, I guess that's what I, I was hoping you would explain a little bit is, is a, I don't think, I, I don't know that people realize the unpredictability of running a sanctuary and the fact that that becomes the norm for you and, and the staff and you do have an amazing staff and you have an amazing, you know, couple of right-hand people. I mean, one of them, Apollinaire, um, who's been with you since mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. almost you arrived. Um, let's go back to that moment when you arrived 20 mm-hmm. some years ago. Yeah. You, you, you've been there. So out of the 27 years that, uh, it's been around. You've been there 22, 20, three years. I think I'll go, yeah, going into my 21, 22, 22nd year now. Yeah. Rachel, tell me about, like, how did you get there? I mean, this has now been 22 years you've been there, almost 22 years. And so how did you end up there? You're not a primatologist. You're not, you know, you didn't work at a zoo before going there. It's like, how, how does it young girl from the UK end up in the middle of Cameroon taking care of gorillas um, for 22 years? Well, I don't, from, from when I was really little, I'd always been an animal lover, but in particular I had this obsession with chimps and gorillas. My family say it was from when I was very little, around three years old. And I'd always wanted to be able to have the chance to work with them. And then life got into in the way and... You know, there was lots of positions out there, but it was for people for studying or research. And I just, that wasn't the path that I'd chosen. And then it was when I was, I think I was about 21 years old. um, And I was involved in quite a bad motorbike accident, which meant I couldn't work for a very long time. And that's when I thought, oh, actually, I want to give this a go. And I happened to see Ape Action Africa that was being shown on a television program in the UK. Back then, they were called QAF, Cameroon Wildlife Aid Fund. And I just thought, oh, well, you know, I'll apply. Just see if they'll take me as a three-month volunteer. Not thinking they would. And not thinking I would end up being there for 22 years. And they said yes, much to my surprise. <laughs> um, And I had no expectations whatsoever, no expectations at all. And then I went over there, over to Cameroon, and I'd only been there about six weeks. And then Khan Daniel arrived, who was a orphan infant gorilla. He was less than two weeks old. And I was given the opportunity to look after Khan Daniel. And 22 years later, I'm still here. And I didn't go home after the three months. <laughs> and nobody's noticed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that I've been missing for 22 years. <laughs> no one's noticed. I, I think they have. I think <laughs> no, no one noticed in the UK, but I think they would definitely notice if you had left uh, Cameroon. I I worked on this 25th anniversary uh, gala video production. So I I had 
the joy of going through a lot of old photographs and seeing some of those photographs of you with Con Daniel when Con Daniel was tiny and it, it's hard to describe how tiny he was. He was, I, I mean, I think maybe the smallest gorilla that at least up yeah. to that point had ever been hand raised, uh, you know, that you, you took on the responsibility for, yeah. I mean, what, what, what was your thought when this thing's handed to you? We're going to take a short break in my conversation with Rachel Hogan. And when we come back, we're going to hear what it was like to raise the world's tiniest rescued baby gorilla. But first, I want to check in with our assistant producer, Demelza Bond. Hey, Demelza, how are you? Hey, Jerry. Oh, I'm great, thanks. I'm so happy to have Rachel here in the studio with us today. She's uh, she's really been sort of an inspiration of mine in this field. Yeah, it's it's amazing to have her on, and I'm so excited because she's such an inspiration to so many young women and girls for the work that she's done, and to do it all, you know, outside the sort of normal go get a primatology degree, go study, you know, primates. I mean, she just it's all grit. So it's amazing to have her yeah, with us. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And I, I really wish more young girls were sort of uh, exposed to heroes like Rachel because when I was younger and I was first trying to get into the primate conservation field, um, my mum actually saw her on telly and sort of pointed her out to me and her being a young girl from Birmingham and me being from Manchester, not not so far away, Um my mum sort of pointed her out and said, you know, if, if she can do it, so can you. And then a few years later, I ended up moving away from home and working with great apes. So I really see her as someone who's, you know, um, inspired me to be in this field. So I'm really, really glad she's here today. Um, speaking of inspiration, uh, I wanted to read out some comments from one of our listeners today. Her name is Susie Thune. And she actually wrote in and told us that she signed up to be a regular donor for PASA through discovering them through our podcast. So we're absolutely thrilled to hear that. Our job here is to raise awareness. So we're so glad to bring you uh, information about the work of these organizations. Susie also said that she um, she's so happy she discovered the podcast. She's thrilled to know others feel so passionately about primates and she just wanted to say a huge thank you. Well, thank you to you, Susie, because we couldn't do it without the listeners. If anyone else has any comments for us, please do send them in. Um, if you head over to our website, talkingapes.org, you'll find all of our social profiles. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, you can write to us, send us a DM. We'd love to hear from you. Well, let's get back to Rachel and our conversation about raising the little gorilla called Con Daniel. I remember that I was patiently waiting for Con to arrive and they had to go very far to a forest area in Cameroon to collect him and, and work with the government to do the confiscation. And then the day they arrived, I remember the person that was holding Khan actually was holding him in one hand, fitted into the person's hand. And then he just handed him to me and I held him. And I just remember my heart stopped. I was absolutely terrified. I'd, I'd worked with British wildlife before. And I'd hand reared hedgehogs and rabbits and foxes and squirrels. 
Gorilla is very different, <laughs> very different. And I didn't, and my heart just stopped. I didn't know what to do. And I just remember looking down at Khan Daniel and his arms and legs were going everywhere and he was screaming. And then all of a sudden it was like uh, something just switched, just flicked. And I put him straight onto my chest and he grabbed on with his hands and his feet. And there he stayed for two years. And that was it. We became one. <laughs> and that's how it was. He went everywhere with me because he was, he was less than two weeks old. And at the time, he was the youngest gorilla to have arrived in a sanctuary. And I'd had no previous experience. I kind of, I learned off Khan. I had to know that when he made that vocalization, it meant that he wasn't very happy. And when he did this, he was happy. And so I learned a huge amount from Khan Daniel. I'm not sure he learned anything from me, though, because I would try my best. I would get the leaves from the forest. I would make nests. I would even be there stripping the leaves and trying to eat them. But I was rubbish. So I don't think he learned much off me, but I learned a huge amount from him. And I'll never forget the first time he laughed either. I'll never forget that. He was only a few months old. And exactly where he, what made him, yeah. And I, I remember I found his tickly spot, which was right at the bottom of his neck on the top of his chest. And I started to, I'd never heard a gorilla laugh before. Um, not, I, I mean, I'd been in the forest with the three youngsters that we had at the time, but they were always off, off beating each other up. Um, and then to be there with Khan, and it was just me and Khan, and I started tickling him at the bottom of his neck, and this tiny little baby laugh came through. And at first I was like, that sounded like a laugh. No, it can't be. And so I carried on doing it, and then it, that was just amazing. I'll never forget that. But I learned a huge amount from Carl Daniel, a huge amount. And even now, you know, he's a 21-year-old silverback. I can still go to the forest, forest area and look at him, and, I, and just by looking at him, I'll know if he's not feeling good or he's having a bad day or there's something wrong with him. Um, yeah, very special, very special boy. Yeah, it's it's amazing to hear apes laugh and especially gorillas. It's just not something you think about when you hear. But I mean, even as large as he is, he still laughs. Oh, yeah. He's, and he's still got the same tickly spot as well. <laughs> he, he's huge. I don't know that I would want to be putting my hand there and tickling him at this he point. He's very impressive. And you've got a lot of silverbacks, which is, is a real challenge for you to have this. I mean... Normally, in the wild, silverbacks would disperse and have their own troops and go kind of their own way. But that, that's got to be. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to have gorillas, because you have more. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have more gorillas in a semi-wild state in their in their home country than anywhere in the world. Possibly. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but possibly. Mm. Maybe you can describe some of the complications behind trying uh, the, to keep uh, a huge challenge, especially for us in probably the primates. last six years, six seven years, because as you said earlier, the the males they hit maturity, and in the wild they would just wander off and find their own family groups. Unfortunately, they haven't got that luxury at Ape Action Africa. So we've had to separate the males. We've had to form different groups. And at the moment, we're in the process of forming a bachelor group. 
And that has taken a huge amount of time. And we're still in the process with that. I mean, these are huge, great big silverbacks. And even though the four that we're introducing together as a bachelor group, they all grew up together from when they were six, seven months old. Um, and we've had to build the enclosure really far away from any of the other gorilla families that have got females in. Um, and it's a very slow process, but it's well because the males, if they get if they're going to fight, it's going to be over two so things. That? It's going to be over females, or it's going to be over territory. Um, so obviously, we wouldn't build a bachelor group close to where they could possibly either visually, you know, see females or smell females. So we've, you know, we've moved that quite far away. Um, but we're taking it very, very slowly, and it's based on their you know, their personalities on who we're introducing first and how that will go. And at the moment, we've got two males that are ready to be, I say introduced, it's reintroduced because they have actually grown up together. Um, Khan Daniel is part of that, hopefully will be part of that bachelor group. Um, and he will be the last to be reintroduced because for many, many years, he was the silverback of that group. Um, when they had females there as well. And unfortunately, he was, the crown was removed from his head. Um, but in his head, he's still, he's still the boss. So he has, I think we'll get the three males together really well. I'm not quite sure. It's a big question mark on Khan Daniel, whether he'll accept to be part of that little group or not. And then, you know, if he doesn't, then that's another issue, okay, so then we, where do we put Garn Daniel and is there another group that he can join and can we reform another family group? And also, this is new to us. We've never done this before. So, you know, how long can a bachelor group stay as a bachelor group for? This is all, a, a, you know, a learning curve for us now. Um, and yet we've got another family group that have got three silverbacks in with three females and at the moment, fingers crossed, and for several years, we've not had any problems. That doesn't mean to say that we won't. Um, I think we've just been lucky, really. But the females in that group have always, always supported the one male, Bobo, and they've never wavered on their loyalty to him, which is why he's, the other males don't touch him. But, of course, that could change at any moment. If the females decide to back another male then all the dynamics change again. Um, it's very, very, very complex, very complex, very challenging. And some parts of it are very new to us. And, you know, we don't know everything. We don't. We know our gorillas. We know their personality. But, you know, we just, we just try our best and try and work with how they are as individuals and, and then, place them where we think they'd be best suited but it it is very complex very complex gorillas are deep <laughs> they don't always show you what they're thinking or what they're feeling at the time <laughs> yeah unlike chimpanzees which you have you know several dozen chimpanzees in enclosures as well, um, in different enclosures, which seem to always show their emotions. <laughs> oh, that's why I love chimps, though. 
that's why I love chimps. You know, you know if the chimps are happy, you know if the chimps are sad, you know if the chimps are angry. They wear their heart on the sleeve. You know, they're very open with their emotions. Gorillas are, yeah, deep. There's a lot more. It's all very subtle with gorillas. I mean, you've learned obviously so much. Did did you? I mean, did you ever imagine twenty two years ago when somebody handed you this little gorilla that you I don't would, know a uh, lot about gorillas? You would know this much about gorillas. <laughs> we still learning every single day. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, we've learned a huge amount in the last twenty something years, but they're still, you know, they surprise me every day. Every day they will do something or something will happen that just blows my mind. Um, they're incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, so, no, back then, well, in my head, I was, it was three months and then I'd go home. And then, but then Khan arrived and I made a promise to him that I would never leave him until I got him into a forested area with his new family with a new family but at the same time a little bit later on down the line when I really started to understand the situation in Cameroon I kind of made a promise to myself that it was either okay so when you've done that and you've got Khan Daniel with a family you've got two choices you either walk away or you stay so I stayed that was my little promise to myself. Making that promise to him, I, I know that he can't be released back into the wild. And there are multiple reasons um, that we could probably chat about that. But um, but recently, you did have an opportunity to put a, mm -hmm. a gorilla back into the wild, which was pretty extraordinary. And again, I, I to me, it it not only was an extraordinary moment, and I know it is to you, and it was also, it goes back to the beginning of this conversation, mm -hmm. which was how unpredictable your day is. So can can you just re recount that whole story for us? Um, yeah, I was in town at the time and received a call from the management team in the morning while I was having my, my cuppa that one of the gorillas had escaped. So I said, right, do the, start the lockdown procedure. If there's an escape, do a head count. Call me back when you've identified which gorilla it is. Call me back. It's not one of our gorillas, but a gorilla is out. I was like, okay, but it's not one of ours. It's definitely not one of ours. Would you want to go and do another head count and, and also head count all the chimps and all the monkeys here? Let's just be sure came back, no, all of our primates are accounted for. We've got a gorilla. And then the third phone call was, we've got a gorilla. It's definitely one of our, not one of ours, possibly a wild gorilla, and it's charging in and out of the forest. So this silverback had obviously been wondering for, we don't know how long, reached the bachelor group, thought, oh, this gorilla's here, and that's where he'd stayed. Our caregivers had gone to do the feeding and the cleaning of the bachelor group. And this big boy had come charging out of the forest. So, yeah, this is a good, a good example of thinking on your feet. <laughs> so I was just like, right, okay. 
uh, and they were like, what do we do? What do we do? It's like, we we're going to have to dart and anesthetize him. It's not safe for him because now he's in a, an area where there's big human population. It's also not safe for, for staff or community members. We need to anesthetize him, get him darted and get him into one of the satellite cages. And so the team did that successfully. And then the following day I went up back to the forest and, Everybody was kind of discussing what we're going to do with him. There's no way we're going to be able to introduce him into one of the groups. And he was huge. I remember walking to the area where we'd put him and just being able to hear him screaming before getting there because the poor boy was so stressed and charging the cage and then seeing him. Yeah, I was like, oh, my life. I haven't got a clue here this has never happened before I don't know I mean this is all in my head I just kind of stood there like I don't know what we're going to do oh blimey and then I just remember all of a sudden saying we're going to put him back in the wild I have no idea where that came from and I remember after thinking what are you talking about Rachel (laughs) you need to learn to keep your mouth shut (laughs) um but I did. I just said, he's not staying here. He's going back in the wild. He's going back. He's not staying here. Um, and then the process started. And there were a few kind of like odd glances. And then it was like, okay, all right then. <laughs> Everyone kind of shuffled off. And then we started the whole procedure. You know, we only allowed one caregiver to be go anywhere near Freedom's area because of his stress levels. Um I started the administrative process with the government because we needed their support and their backing. And then it was having to go and find suitable areas, talking to other conservation organisers. We had never done this ever. You know, there's no there's no handbook where, OK, so if a silverback just rocks into your sanctuary one day, this is what you need to do. There was nothing. It was just like, OK, the lists were endless, you know, I'd be writing the lists and then there'd be another page and another page. Oh, and we need to think about this and we need to think about this. Um, I think it took about four months before we were able to get him out. And it was just incredible. The work that was involved, the people that were involved, the support we received the Ape Action Africa staff, how they worked, the community members in the area that we returned freedom to. It was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, we had to cross a river with him in a transport cage that took 13 men to carry. It was an eight-hour drive in the back of a, a truck and me and Apollinaire sat there. He was fine. Freedom was fine all the way because he'd had his nice, happy drugs. So he was singing all the way. Me and Apollinaire were thrown all over the place. And then having to adapt the boat. And oh, we thought of it was just perfect. It was, I mean, it was the most stressful time ever. Even now, I find it, uh, I get a bit lost for words because I still kind of, when I think back, I'm like, oh, my life, did we do that? Did we actually do that? We did that. And it went really well. And, it, yeah, that moment when we 
opened the cage door and he beat his chest and he banged on the side of the cage and he he ran out. It was a game changer. It changed everything for me and it changed everything for APAC Africa as well. Even now, two, three years on, I find it difficult to put it into words, that feeling. We, you know, we'd spent all those years rescuing, rehabilitating, and and that will always be our core mission of APAC in Africa. But all of a sudden, we'd just opened a door and returned a silverback to the wild, and he wasn't behind an electric fence. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Maybe... Uh... You can explain how the name Freedom came about before we move on. Uh, That was the following day, because when he was placed in the satellite cage, when we needed to talk about him, everyone would refer to him as the wild gorilla. Um, And so the following day, I said, yeah, his his name's Freedom, because we're going to give it, we want to be able to give it him back. So his name's Freedom. So that's how they came, that came about. That just popped in your head? Yeah, just and I remember it. It was when I was walking down. It was Shufai's enclosure, one of the gorilla family groups you know very well. And he was, Freedom was housed in that satellite cage. And it was while I was at the entrance there. And we were chatting about a plan and we were all referring the wild gorilla. What should we do about feeding for the wild gorilla? And then it just came out then. No, we're going to call him Freedom because we're going to give it him back. I've been lucky enough to see some of the the footage that is is was shot and is being going to be in a hopefully a film upcoming film um, of him going wild, and it was a real sense of freedom. I mean, it was amazing to get to to see that footage. I, I can't even imagine being there um, and and actually seen that cage i've been lucky enough to to see orangutans released into the wild and chimpanzees released back um but to see a a gorilla that size go back in the wild was although it was only a split second long (laughs) he came out of that cage and and went in a hurry yeah yeah it was very fast but yeah it's just oh yeah just like all of a sudden Everything seemed possible. And for that split moment, you know, the world was a good place. I probably could have run a marathon after that as well, I'm telling you. Like, everyone, the the adrenaline running through everybody was just amazing. I think I've actually cried after as well. One seen him go, but two from the relief of everything. <laughs> You've mentioned that it, it changed everything. How how did Freedom's return? How did how did it change how you think about uh, the work you're doing and just the the future and the possibility? And because for all those years we've been, you know, rescuing rehabilitation, rescue rehabilitation. The moment we opened that door for Freedom, it was like all of a sudden being able to put chimps and gorillas back in the wild suddenly seemed possible. Freedom made it real. We'd spent all of those years rescuing rehabilitation, which, you know, is incredibly important, but you're dealing with everyday problems and 
and just that in itself running the sanctuary you you never get a chance to look kind of further beyond that and then when you do it just feels untouchable you know there's always been a goal to be able to find a protected forest area to be able to possibly reintroduce back into the wild and that's such a a huge task and you know when you you look at that of course that's where you want to move towards but it just feels impossible to reach it's like how do we even get there and then that day that we opened the door for that few minutes we touched it and it was like that's how you get there that's exactly how you get there and that's how it felt as soon as the door opened and he went out and I you know it was it it almost feels like freedom turned up to kind of ruffle a few feathers and kind of get us on track on where we needed to go because that's exactly what he did and I really do and I do think that had freedom arrived five years earlier or six, you know, I'd, whether we would have had the capability of doing that. I mean, obviously, we'd have no choice because we'd have to <clears throat> organise something. But I think he, he turned up at a time where we were able to do that. We didn't think it at the time when he arrived, but we did it. And then for those split seconds, it was like, OK, this is possible. And, and that's where we kind of need to to move towards now rescue and rehabilitation will always be our core but the only way of being able to stop more orphans coming in you know we need to start protecting forests working with governments to protect forests we need to have got wild populations in looking into possible reintroduction areas and and freedom kind of shone the light on that for us especially for me it was just like, okay, is it going to be another 22 years of just doing the same? Because where is that getting us? How is that solving anything? It's not. Because um, there has to be a point where the orphans need to stop coming in and we've got to keep them where they belong. And that's wild in the forest, not in sanctuaries. And Freedom kind of went, and this is what you need to do. <laughs> and you can do it. And that's how it felt the day he went out. It also makes the education and the outreach more real. It's like we, you know, we, we, we constantly are telling people, whether it's in a local village or it's globally, you know, um, that this, you know, this is why we have to save these animals and da, da, da. But to actually have it work, to put freedom back into the wild and, and know that, that you've gained all that experience now to be able to do it, it, it's like you can say to people with more conviction and, and authenticity that we can do this. It doesn't have to be a one-way road. And also, I think also when we worked with the local communities in the area that Freedom was returned to, and their support was amazing. They were so involved in his return you know freedom is is a very famous gorilla in that area all the young lads that helped us with that mission have all nicknamed themselves freedom um and then afterwards it was like but we you know is it possible that apaction africa can come and do some community work here because we know we've got wild gorillas here and we'd really like to protect them that 
engagement and hearing that from communities was was such a, well it was just really encouraging for us as well because it's it's like we had support from so many levels um you know that was that was really quite amazing to have that how does this make you uh, rethink or change the way you approach community education and outreach mm-hmm. well this is this is a field that is completely new to us we've not done this previously it's been rescue and rehabilitation and our education program has worked around that so now we're you know we've branched off into an area of you know, that is a a little bit unknown to us and isn't necessarily our area of expertise. You know, what have we got? We've got our experience of what we've achieved as Ape Action Africa over 27 years, the knowledge that we've got, our reputation as well, our supporters. But this is now something that we are going to have to call in other people that this is their area of expertise. You know, how does this fit in to our education programme now? How does this fit into how we work in the communities? This is all completely, a completely new area to us now, Jerry. So again, you know, this is a learning, a learning curve for us. I, I want to ask you uh, a couple of last questions. And one of them being, how do people who are listening to this help you do this work? I think one of the things that's really important is for is for all of us to take responsibility first. Um, it's really easy to kind of look at what's happening and, it, it, you know, it's in a country very far away and it's a problem over there, but actually we're really, resp- all of us play a part and we're all really responsible in what happens to forests and and the wild animals that depend on forests. We all have to take responsibility of that. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to come over to Cameroon and do what the Ape Action Africa team are doing it. There are so many different layers to support, whether, you know, going from informing other people, making awareness, having awareness of what's going on, um, to coming out and volunteering, to helping with funds as well. Funds are really difficult because also for us to get, for Ape Action Africa to be able to branch off and do be able to achieve forest protection and hopefully one day reintroducing, that takes a lot of funds, a lot of expertise. You know, there's there's so many different elements to that. And there's so many different ways that people can help and it doesn't have to necessarily, like I say, come out to Cameroon. Be aware of what's happening. Be aware of, of what you're buying and it's not just a, a problem for Cameroon, it's a problem for all of us. And it's like when I always get there's so many times in interviews or just general questions and, and people turn round to me and say, Oh, can you explain to me why it's important that we protect chimps and gorillas? And 20 years ago, I was quite comfortable answering that question. But now I I just won't answer it because I'm like, no, 
I'm not going to answer that because actually you should answer why you aren't doing anything. Because if we're still asking the question, can you just explain to me why it's really important to protect chimps and gorillas in 2022? You know, we've got a, a serious problem there. And it's not. It's actually, well, why aren't you doing something to help them? Yeah, I think that's the ultimate question. Why aren't you doing something? I couldn't agree more. Thank you for doing this. I know um, your time was short in the UK and you got to get back to that unplanned chaos that you live every day in Cameroon. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to spend and I'm sure everybody listening to this appreciates it as well. And most importantly, thank you and thank you to the team there in Cameroon for everything you've done over all these years. Um, there, you've got a lot of little, as you refer to them, kids that thank you with their panic and their heartbeat. And occasionally, I guess they're, they're tickle spots, but uh, you know, they may not be able to verbalize it the same way, but I, I want to say thank you from all of us for what you've done. It's amazing. Thank you, Jerry. And I hope you'll be over in Cameroon very soon. Well, I know you will. You just rock on up to the forest whenever. I know firsthand how valuable Rachel Hogan's time is outside of Cameroon. And I'd like to thank her once again for sharing this last hour with us. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about apes like us. You can find a catalog of previous episodes as well as a list of upcoming guests on our Talking Apes website at talkingapes.org. That's talkingapes.org one word dot org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts if you have any questions for us here at talking apes or ideas about future podcasts you can always email us at media at talking i'd like to thank talking apes assistant producer demelza bond for all of her stellar work behind the scenes and to our new lead researcher megan lewandowski welcome aboard i would also like to say a special thanks to all of those who have supported us with your donations The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation on our website or by becoming a Patreon subscriber where you'll have access to special features, sneak previews, and behind-the-scenes interviews. Check out those links at TalkingApes.org. And finally, I would especially like to thank all of those who work tirelessly, often invisibly, every single day to rescue, protect, and save wild great apes. We hope through Talking Apes, we can add a stronger voice to everything you do. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.